everyone. This is Kate Stanton, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Anna DePaula Hanukkah, CEO and co-founder of Uno Health. Founded in 2019, Uno enrolls Medicare members in the federal and state programs like SNAP, the Medicare Savings Program, Energy Assistance Programs, and more that they're eligible for, benefiting both the member and payer. Uno has put over $10 million back into the pockets of low-income Americans, and its investors include Google Ventures, General Catalyst, Floodgate, and Cowboy Ventures. Anna and I discuss how she became interested in solving challenges related to the U.S. healthcare system and identified enrolling seniors in federal and state programs as the particular problem she wanted to solve. Uno's business and operational model and value proposition to payers and members. The way Anna has seen these government-run programs work really well and less well, and how supplemental benefits programs from payers can fill some existing gaps. And finally, lessons she's learned during her journey as an entrepreneur and advice she has for people starting tech-enabled services businesses. Anna, thanks so much for joining me on The Pulse this afternoon. How are you doing today? Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for having me today. I am doing great and excited for the conversation. Awesome. So let's dive right in and start with our uh, typical icebreaker that we ask all of our guests. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So it's a fun one to start with. Um, So maybe a bit more context. I've always been a little bit split brain between art and science, probably as the result of growing up as the the child of a designer and engineer. Also, I loved books. And that resulted in the first thing that I ever wanted to be, uh, being a book designer, because I love them so much. And I wanted to uh, make all of their covers really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, second, the second fun answer to that is I, um, I did a lot of dancing when I was younger and was quite serious about ballet and had to make probably the first serious decision of my life uh, when I was about 14 to not go and be a ballet dancer. Unfortunately, if you want to go and be a real ballet dancer, you have to go and do that full time from about the age of 14. And I like school too much. And so I did not want to go and do that. But the the serious kind of more real answer to that question in the context of you know what we're about to get into and where, where I've ended up is thanks to Susan Greenfield's book the secret life of the brain i got really into neuroscience and you know as a result medicine and then read a book about a guy called paul farmer when i was about 17 and became obsessed with this idea um, of the challenge that we have in healthcare not being one of lack of technology and lack of solutions um, but one of translation so for context paul farmer did a lot of work in haiti um, and in south america and worked in a not often an always super scalable way of translating things like antibiotics and really basic best practices of medicine into communities that didn't have access to those basic themes. What really struck me about his work was that there was this need to really bridge the gap between these really fundamental solutions we have in healthcare and the people that we need them most. Super fascinating. We could have probably a whole other podcast conversation about this, but I also did ballet pretty intensely. You mentioned that you had an interest in healthcare and that you spent time at Google in the US. 
I know that you're from the UK, which has a pretty different healthcare system from the US's in terms of how care is paid for, who pays for it, and as a result, what's prioritized. So what made you want to play a part in improving the US's, frankly, crazy healthcare system? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a question I do get asked. Um, it definitely wasn't sort of an explicit choice to come out and solve, solve for the, the more challenging system. So for reasons I just described, I, I knew I wanted to get into healthcare and then was lucky to, to land a job at Google straight out of college and was working within their marketing team for a couple of years in London before getting the chance to come out to the US, out to Mountain View to launch the first Google phone, the Nexus One, which has nothing to do with um, healthcare, but had got me out to California and realized that the only healthcare work that Google was doing at the time was also out in California. And so if I wanted to try and get into that work, I needed to stay out in the US and, and you know, realized by that point that uh, California and the US wasn't too bad and had a really good opportunity to go and work for that team, which was Google.org at the time. That was then coupled, you know, over the course of a couple of years later with a realization that there was a much larger market and challenge to solve for. And my chances of combining the type of work that I was really interested in, which was product work and the problem spaces, there was a much higher chance of finding those opportunities and finding the roles that I was interested in if I stayed stayed out in the US. I joke that folks who end up staying in healthcare kind of get masochistically addicted to the complexity. Um, and so, you know, 10 years later, I'm, I'm still here uh, wanting to solve for the challenges in the US. But in all honesty, you know, having found Medicare and Medicare Advantage specifically as a space, I will say that I do think the Medicare Advantage model is this really interesting, powerful, exciting model and an example of how the government, the state delegates the management of healthcare and health outcomes to a private entity in a way that creates a really powerful combination of both kind of federal oversight and private uh, incentives. Your point about essentially you have to be kind of crazy to commit your career to healthcare. There might be something to that. You started to allude to what you're focused on today, which is UNO, and we'll spend much more time on this. But to start, would love to hear a little bit about just how you identified enrollment of Medicare members in government programs is the issue that um, you wanted to work on, as well as how you identified your now co-founder, Chloe Fatusi, as the person that you wanted to work on this with. Maybe to kind of go back to where I, I was in, at Google. So I was, I was at Google wanting to get into healthcare. Realized for a few reasons, I didn't think Google was the, the best place to cut my teeth. So I left had a couple of hops at what I call wave one digital health startup. So I was a classic tech nerd coming out of Google, um, really excited about the power of data coming out of new wearables to be able to reinvent the way that we manage chronic conditions. was really lucky to get to work with Stanford and a guy called Mike McConnell to, to build some early prototypes, but learned pretty quickly that you really needed to understand where the financial incentives lived in the system. And everyone kept pointing to payers as these black boxes. But I was looking at them and like, this is where all the money and all the data goes. So it seems like a pretty important place to be. 
that ultimately led me to joining um, an organization called Clover Health, which was one of the first venture-backed health plans and specifically focused on Medicare Advantage. Um, and that really gave me my opportunity um, coming in as a product manager to, one, like learn the ropes of what it took to run a plan and specifically an MA plan. And two, really learn a lot more about you know where those incentives and opportunities live um, and got the chance to work pretty comprehensively across the business. One of the hats and areas I spent a lot of time in was medical expenses and outcomes. And so we had a portfolio of initiatives that I was involved in, one of which was standing up what we called an in-home complex care program. It's a pretty common and well-known model in the industry now. Um, and the idea is you take a 360 team of a physician, typically it can be a nurse at the center of it, combined with social worker, medical assistants, sometimes a caseworker, 24-hour support. And you take that team and you go into the homes of the 5% of your population driving 50% of expenses. And the in-home part is critical because when you look at the population within a Medicare population that is driving 50% of your expenses, you're looking at a very comorbid and expensive um, group of individuals who typically will have somewhere between 10 and 15 chronic conditions, which ultimately results in them often not being particularly mobile and importantly, uh, you know, typically going into the hospital and being admitted every couple of weeks. And as a result, costing you as a plan somewhere between 15 and $300,000 a year. So I led standing up this, this model, uh, version of this model within Clover. And what I saw really quickly within this program was we sent this incredible team into the homes of these members, created this amazing care plan, gave them all these resources. But the reality for so many of them was that they could barely afford two meals a day, let alone the 30 prescriptions we were trying to get them to take or the surgery or the treatment that we needed them to go to. And really quickly, our team of social workers and doctors and nurses were solving for this financial challenge and this barrier that we had to overcome to achieve our goals. And the way that we solved for that financial barrier was by leveraging the seven state and federal income-based programs that you know we support today in a much more streamlined way at Uno. But back then, it was you know our team Googling these programs, printing them off from their desks, filling them out in their cars. And it quickly consumed a huge amount of this very expensive clinical team's time. And we are spending 50% of our weekly IDT meetings talking about the status of someone's Medicaid application or their food stamps application, again, as a real dependency to us achieving our goals of reducing the cost of this population by 30%. So I saw that really firsthand and then was seeing this pattern play out across the organization of there being a financial dependency to achieving our you know, revenue goal, whether that was getting members to take their meds and not being able to afford them, whether that was brokers out in the fields, pounding the pavement, trying to convince members to join our plan, leveraging these programs and financial support as a way of building trust and getting them into our, into our plan. And again, was consistently seeing how these programs were the tool, the mechanism for overcoming that financial challenge and, and achieving our goal, which whatever it might be. I, we can come back to this, but died on a few buy versus build hills at Clover and kind of learned, uh, learned you know, where there are really true opportunities to use technology to solve problems in healthcare in particular and came out of Clover really believing that this was a really strong opportunity to leverage technology to radically streamline the enrollment process across these programs 
ultimately unlock a lot of value for both members and their plans, but also enable a lot of individuals working within and outside of plans to operate at the top of their license because they aren't burdened with this work. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I think that your overview of the the program that you stood up and how closely tied the ability to both receive high quality healthcare and do the things that someone needs to maximize their health is so closely intersected with a number of social care, in this case, barriers. So thank you for sharing that. Anna, now that we've spent some time both getting to know you a bit and how you arrived at uh, sort of the point where you were ready to dive into solving this problem and and launch a business around it. I'd love to get myself um, and our listeners on the same page about some of the basics about Uno. So I haven't actually done this before, but I'm going to call it like a rapid fire set of questions. So just a few sentences in response to a few basic points about Uno and its business model. So to start, could you provide a brief overview of, of Uno? Uno is a, a tech-enabled service. We sell into Medicare Advantage payers. And what we sell them is a single point of contact that proactively outreaches and enrolls as many of their members into as many of the seven state and federal income-based programs available to 50% of their population. To take a second to give a little bit more context there, because we breezed over it earlier, Across the entire U.S. and every single state, there are seven federal and state income-based programs available to 50% of the Medicare population that give individuals an average, it's often much more, of $5,000 of copay reductions and cash assistance every single year. These are programs that include everything from Medicaid itself, food stamps, utility assistance, prescription assistance, and even phone line assistance. Programs that give members, as I said, $5,000 in cash and copay reduction every single year, which is incredibly powerful in the context of the average Medicare member earning, living on $24,000 on average, and then having to spend about four or five of that on out-of-pocket healthcare costs. So these programs are super powerful. What's the problem? The problem is, is that the application process for each of these seven programs is really hard. Complex eligibility rules, pages and pages of paperwork. The result is that within each of these seven, 50% are not enrolled. So you've got 50% of the Medicare population across the country that could be spending a lot less on their healthcare costs and daily living expenses every single year. We solve for that by using technology to radically streamline kind of turbo tax enrollment into these programs. And that's technology that our team uses to go out and get as many, many members enrolled in as many programs as possible you described well the problems that you're solving for the members of Medicare Advantage plans. Can you share the main problems you're solving for the MA plans you work with? Yeah. Why, why is this the business? Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So there's a couple of layers. I, I like to talk about kind of the value uh, layer cake that we deliver. So this, the first reason and the reason why Chloe and I knew that there was a business opportunity here is that three out of the seven programs we enroll members into generate very immediate and very significant top-line revenue bumps for our customers, the MA plans. It's through this program called the Risk Adjustment Program. The high level is that the government knows that the lower income you are, the more expensive you are. And so when we enroll a member into Medicaid and a program called Medicare Savings Program, they become what's known as a dual 
either full or partial. And as a result, our customers receive the month they get enrolled, an average of a 20% increase in top line revenue, uh, Part C revenue from CMS every month. So irrespective of whether anyone's incentivized about everything that comes next, there's a pure revenue incentive to get as many members on those programs as possible. The real, the reason why plans are so excited about Uno and why they're buying us is because the next set of challenges that these programs solve for is that of retention and perception. Cost is the number one reason why members move around and switch plans and go shopping during AEP. And it's become a hair on fire problem for the industry. The Medicare industry is now at about 50% penetration. It grew another 55% this year during AEP. But that growth is now coming more and more from plan switching. So not members going from fee-for-service Medicare onto an MA plan for the first time, but moving from MA plan to MA plan, which means that plans now really have to care and worry about how do they keep their members once they've got them. And again, cost is the number one reason why members move. So addressing cost as a challenge is the number one thing that plans have to, have to solve for. And these programs are the most powerful way that you can solve for any kind of financial challenge for this population. The second problem that we're solving for is perception. For a couple of reasons we can go into more detail around, perception has become a very heavily weighted revenue driver for Medicare Advantage plans. Um, And it's been historically something they haven't had to worry too much about. These programs are one of the most powerful where you can shift a member's perception because you can imagine what it's like if you're a member of an insurance plan and they give you a service that allows you to gain eight, ten thousand, maybe more dollars back every single year. You know, we experience this every single day, but our members that we serve go off and want to tell every single one of their friends and family to come and join that plan so they get to benefit from you know. All of those uh, reasons sound pretty fa- powerful, but the alignment between the fact that the cost, cost being the main reason that members are switching plans, so actively helping members be able to better afford uh, those plans, but also the care they receive that seems to seems like something that would really resonate with your payer partners. So last sort of rapid fire question is, how does Uno make money? Uh, great question. So we are success-based for the most part which we know is really important for this industry and for our customers, which means that we only really make money once we get members successfully enrolled in the programs that we support. That incentivizes us to get as many members enrolled um, and also staying on our, on our customers' plans. It's a PMPM model and it, and it is weighted slightly differently depending on the programs that we get folks enrolled into. We hear a lot about challenge of scalability required for profitable models in tech-enabled healthcare services. I think you sort of indirectly alluded to a number of these, but can you highlight what the main components of your model that facilitate scale are? I think there's a few different ways for us. Um, so there's like the obvious one, which is that our technology encodes the complexity of program enrollment. So that's the eligibility rules, the application processes, and all of the different agencies. And that scales as we scale to different geographies and means that, you know, members, no one other than anyone on our team, and even our team ever have to really worry about that rule set. So that's the first way that our technology creates scale. The second is classic workflow. Typically, individuals have to manage the entire enrollment workflow by themselves. We create 
modularization, which means that we can really segment the workflow from the member engagement portion through to the data entry application submission piece, which is just classic modularization. So our technology, our workflow allows us to create that modularization and scale um, as we're scaling up to support more members and create the efficiencies within each of those processes. Third layer is within each of those processes, creating as much automation and as, as, as much of an efficiency. One of the really fun things we're starting to build today is bringing a lot of the classic sales strategies into our workflow, things like member segmentation and then team segmentation to make sure that we're really optimizing for the, the combination of team and members that we have. On the flip side, I'm I'm curious to hear about how you manage some of the potential complexities that might inhibit scale. Like I think that people often talk about Medicaid as a challenging area of healthcare to work in in venture backed models because uh, sort of programs vary at every state. So people say like if you've worked mm. with one Medicaid plan, you've worked with one Medicaid plan. So um, you obviously have to work with some of the unique benefits within those um, programs. Although um, actually the seven sort of key areas that you mentioned might be more streamlined than I'm imagining. Could you specifically speak to sort of that challenge and or other inhibitors of scale that might might present challenges that, you, that you've either overcome or are still uh, dealing with? The challenges of scale as a business, I'd say I, I don't think and I don't have experience outside of healthcare are less unique to healthcare. There's always the classic case of if you're selling B2B, whether that's SaaS, whether that's tech-enabled service, you want to make sure that your ratio of what you're selling is like as close to you know 100% similar every single time. Mm-hmm. And I'd say there, there are specific challenges in selling into a managed care organization, things like the compliance requirements and getting through the contracting process. And then all of the sort of uh, complexity that you have in standing up a solution once you've got that contract signed. Because Chloe and I come from a plan, we knew we had sort of like a leg up in knowing what those were. And we invested a lot of energy and resources in the first year and two of our business in investing in the infrastructure to enable that scale. So for example, we now have a um, a compliance and security process that allows us to get through the security part of our sales intake faster than I, I think probably a lot of people, but in a, a very, very, very quick, quick way. And so I'd say that's an area where, you know, I always advocate to anyone who will um, listen that those are things that I think from an innovation perspective in the industry are things that startups shouldn't have to relearn. The kind of leg up and the building blocks you need around being SOC 2 compliant, HIPAA compliant, those are universal. And then there's a couple of specifics into the, the Medicare Advantage and managed care space in particular. I'd then say specific to being a tech-enabled service, again, this is like a challenge that's not specific to healthcare. It is, is universal to any service-based business. And that is you know, the specifics of how do you scale when you're ultimately your revenue and your, your product is one that is delivered by a team of humans um, and as you sign a contract or multiple contracts that require a team of that team to be 10 times the size it is today, you've got to go through some pretty rapid scaling. And so there, there are a couple of kind of system investments we've needed to make around things like really tight feedback loops on our hiring process and on our staffing, uh, our staffing process. So things like making sure 
as we hire new cohorts onto our enrollment team? Are we systematically always coming back and testing, okay, did our hiring criteria and process get us to the, the same level of talent, other improvements we can make? And then one example, once we've hired folks up, is always making sure that we're staffed to say, call it like 125%, and making sure we never go back down below. So we're never in a situation where we don't have the team size we need to support the customers we have. I like how you mentioned both scaling the actual service that you're providing, but also just increasing sort of ability to work with more partners um, in a way that finds, finds efficiencies as you work with more I guess to sort of tie tie a bow on our conversation about Uno before we we go into some other topics, can you share a quantifiable outcome uh, related to Uno that you're especially proud of? Well, ultimately for us, it comes it comes back to the value, the impact we deliver for members, and so you know our mission at Uno is to be able to ensure many individuals across the country have access to the best care for the lowest cost. To put some numbers on it, you know, to date we've put over $10 million of actual real cash and copay reductions in members' pockets. And that's that's not fake money, that's like real, real money that's gone gone into members' pockets. And that's those are numbers and dollars that then mean that someone is able to afford their chemotherapy, that they can now spend more time with their grandkids because they don't have to worry about working a second job to be able to pay for their insulin or that they're staying with their health plan because they can now afford the co-pays. Um, and we see this day in, day out with our teams working with members. Yesterday was a member who we'd identified that that member was eligible for four programs that was going to get them about $4,000 a year. And the member's response was, now I can live like a human. And that's ultimately what our goal is, is to enable millions of individuals to live more dignified lives because they can afford really important aspects of their care and of their daily living expenses. Shifting our conversation a bit. So we have uh, been been talking a lot about government benefits and specifically the seven programs um, that you mentioned, but also in this landscape are supplemental benefits that MA plans have have uh, began offering in the last number of years. That, that might include uh, non-medical benefits like transportation, food benefits, home modification services, and a number of others. So you published an article in AJMC, and you noted that benefits provided through supplemental benefits programs, uh, essentially that uh, existing government programs can more effectively, both more effectively, I think, in terms of outcomes, but also cost they can be more effective than the supplemental benefits programs we're seeing from payers. Based on that, what do you see as the right place for the supplemental benefits programs that payers have been investing in? So we've been lucky to experience and see the evolution over the last three years from CMS originally deciding and putting out the policy that allowed plans to be able to actually spend their benefit dollars on non-clinical benefits, as you described, like transportation, food, you know, in-home support. And what's happened is that the market has very quickly grabbed onto those and leveraged them for the purpose of, of marketing purposes, so the purpose of growth differentiation, which is great, but moved away from that initial sense of, uh, or the reason why those benefits were put into the policy, which was to encourage plans to invest in those benefits as a solution to SDOH. 
our perspective has always been, as you said, and as we put in the article, that these programs, the existing dollars on the table, are a much more powerful and cost-effective way to solve for the root cost cause of social determinants of health across the border population. And to put it really bluntly, if a plan wants to put dollar on a debit card, whether it's a food card or an OTC card, they've got to spend $1.60 in their bid to make that happen. We go and enroll a member in four programs and we unlock $10,000 of cash and copay reduction. Like that's, that's benefit, that's value that a plan would never be able to afford to give their members. Um, and so our perspective, our strong perspective is leverage these existing programs to solve for financial needs, social determinants of health needs as far as possible, and then become much more precise around how you're matching individuals uh, where those gaps cannot be met, those financial gaps or needs cannot be met with the programs, and there's still a need. So the, the example I always use is, let's say you've got a member who's got arthritis and kidney disease. They can't move around, they can't leave their home, and they really need to have make sure they're eating meals that don't exacerbate their condition. That's a great case of an individual who would really benefit from home-delivered, clinically tailored meals. And, you know, we can get them on all the food stamps dollars in the world, but that member's going to have a really hard time getting out the house to use them in a local grocery store. Um, and I think what's cool is that the industry, I think, is coming and evolving to a point of understanding uh, there's a combination of uses for these uh, supplemental benefits. One, the ones that are more broadly applicable to the population that you want to use for marketing purposes. And then two, the ones that are actually going to drive outcomes from an S2H perspective. And those should be much more precise and targeted. And there's a couple of different vehicles for that. You know, there's things like VBIDs um, and CSNPs and ways in which you can prioritize and limit the benefit access into really specific types of plans that are targeted to individuals with those chronic conditions. What are either the biggest gaps in types of services that sort of the seven programs that UNOS works with, the, the biggest gaps within those or gaps that might exist in categories of services? That's a great question. So I think that there's what I would call eligibility gaps. So those are individuals who, for some reason, like unfortunately, maybe they, they had their income and what they get through social, social security is really low, but they live in a house that is has a very high valuation. And that might be for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they acquired it at a very low price. It's now worth a lot of money. For whatever reason, like they, they're not, they're living on very low income and or they've got very high out-of-pocket costs. So they are financially insecure, but they don't qualify for these programs. So those are the individuals who, unfortunately, we can't change those rules um, to make them eligible, remain very financially insecure. So, so that's one category. The second category I'd say we see most often is in the case of food. So food, food stamps goes a really long way to enabling individuals to be able to just be able to afford two, three meals a day. And particularly if you've got families living all together and you've got a, a grandparents or a grandma, grandpa, and they, they're looking after a family of kids and grandkids in one house, we'll often find that that food stamps benefit just doesn't go, go far enough. So it's, it is definitely individuals for whom, you know, complementing that food stamps benefit can be incredibly powerful, whether that's with a food delivery program or just additional cash. And then I'd say not surprisingly, um, especially with the 
economic climate is that housing rent assistance is continuing to be, you know, the number one thing that's a little bit harder for us to, to solve. And it's, you know, we, we are considering potentially adding housing assistance into our benefit package, but it, it, you know, it's a more challenging application and it won't be, it won't be accessible for everyone in the population. And so it's exciting to see, you know, organizations like Humana and United continue to invest as housing as something that is, will continue to really move, move the needle on outcomes. Housing seems like one of those those really important ones, but certainly super difficult uh, for for so many reasons. I'm going to pivot again and want to move on to some more leadership and and related topics. But actually, before I do, just to sort of discuss a little bit about where Uno um, is heading, and it sounds like it's been an incredible past few years. But what are you and your team's main priorities for the rest of 2023? Um, I'd say we've got three three big priorities. One is we're starting to expand beyond go-to-market product and service, which is core enrollments, um, into what we describe as Medicare success. Today, we go and enroll uh, Medicare members into many of these programs as possible, as I just described. We're now building on that to really leverage the fact that we have really strong engagement with this population um, and are able to gather really valuable insights around What's making that population tick? What do they like? What do they not like about their plan? What are going to be the most likely drivers of them going and shopping around? And as I described, retention perception, these hair on fire problems that we're in a really right position to be able to support our plan customers with. So we're starting to roll out a combination of um, additional product lines and services that, that leverage that, do a couple of things. One, give our customers kind of real-time insights on their plan population that they can then develop and test uh, strategies for retention and perception, but then also start to solve for those challenges in real time. Again, we've got members on the phone. If they're communicating a challenge about transport, we know that their plan has a transport benefit. We're, you know, we want to be able to solve that in real time. So expanding beyond core enrollment is, is number one. Two is continued scalability in unit economics and getting to a place with our existing service where uh, as you asked uh, so personally, like scale is not a challenge for us. Our sales team can go and close $100 million worth of contracts and, and we can go and deliver on those contracts in a timeline that, that we want to. Um, so continuing to build the foundations for that across the business um, that will then really prep us up for, for large growth in 24. So that really represents the third key pillar, which is both obviously on the sales side but on the core investments as an organization to be ready for really large growth going into next year. Awesome. That sounds like many really exciting things on, on the horizon. And I'm excited to see your continued growth. So now let's actually uh, talk about leadership, namely personal development, hiring, and fundraising. So starting with personal development, I think that in the leaders that I've worked with and, and now just being in school and having spent quite a bit of time thinking about leadership, humility, and and growth mindsets, among other things, stand out as uh, some critical elements of effective leaders. Based on that, um, I'd love to hear about what's a mistake or misstep that you feel that you've made in your career that you feel you learned the most from? I'll answer, I'd say, uh, probably one of my biggest learnings from Uno, and hopefully that answers your question. I'd say coming from a product background, and I'd say in particular, as an individual who you know, had the fortune of working within organizations like Google, 
and typically being one who's kind of zigzagged a little bit and like gone to find those 20% projects that I can build new cool things in slightly outside of the more beaten path. I personally haven't come with sort of like a strong need for, you know, management per se. And so one of the things I think I very much underestimated when we were building um, and, and scaling the, in particular, the operations team at Uno was really appreciating how critical strong management is from the beginning um, and making the assumption that, like, we're a startup. Everyone's going to be, like, happy to operate independently without without the level of management that you would need and expect at a large organization. And so, obviously, this is something that we've, we've corrected for and really excited about the, the leadership that we now have in place and will continue to bring in. But I think really underestimating the need for that, even at pretty small scale, was a mistake and, and I'd say like one of my biggest learnings in building the organization so far. But happy to say that we have very much learned, course corrected and have an awesome, awesome team in place today. That's really interesting. And I'm actually in a class right now. Today we, mm. were, we were just chatting about when is the right time to sort of move from being more fluid where everyone does does everything. You don't really need too many uh, sort of more more within a flat hierarchy versus when you need to start bringing in in more layers, processes, really like management in some ways and all that. Moving on to uh, hiring um, and expanding your team. So um, either within those sort of operators you've hired or, or beyond, what are three things that you look for in everyone you hire? Yeah, that's an awesome segue because actually... Um, we look for um, <laughs> the answer to that question. Uh, no, we um, humility and a learning mindset is really <laughs> critical for us. So we, we do always ask everyone, in particular leaders uh, and more senior folks, like what are the biggest mistakes and what they've learned? And if someone can't talk or point to them, it's, it's a pretty, pretty big red flag for us, again, particularly at a more senior stage. Coupled with that, Feedback is a really big part of our culture. Um, one of our values is kind of showing up and giving feedback and supporting each other, our members and our customer. And so testing and exploring how someone provides and receives feedback and that's, some, that's the kind of environment they're excited to be in. And then I say a, a third thing is um, having a solutions first mentality. And that doesn't mean solving for everything by themselves in isolation at all. It just means you know, you know this, again, like healthcare is full of challenges. We, we operate in a very challenging environment. It, it becomes, you know, pretty exhausting if someone isn't able to sort of bring at least that first step along the path to, to figuring out how they're going to solve for something. So having people who are thinking and bring that solutions first mindset um, is really critical and aren't going to come in and just kind of complain about all of the challenges that they see, see all around them. Let's talk about fundraising, which especially right now, due to the macro environment, feels like a particularly hot topic. And I, I'm i not sure that this is formally publicly announced, but I did some sleuthing, mostly just by looking at your job descriptions, actually. And it looks like <laughs> Uno um, raised some funding round uh, that included Google Ventures and maybe General Catalyst a bit ago. In light of the changing funding environment, how did uh, this most recent round feel different and as a result, how did you and your team approach it? First of all, I will always give credit to sleuthing. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. We raised our Series A with uh, Google Ventures and General Catalyst as part of that round back at the end of 21. So actually that round was 
probably kind of at the tail end of what you might, you know, you might describe as the boom before um, yep. the market started to correct towards the second half of last year. Within that formal round, things didn't feel different for us, at least. And I'd say that for us, you know, we really, one of the things that has been true about Chloe and I and about Uno from day one is like remaining laser focused on the value prop and being able to tell a really tight story about the value prop. Now, one of the things that changed just going from C to Series A in that round was being able to talk about Uneconomics. So that was a big theme of our Series A conversation, irrespective, was, you know, we're a tech-enabled service. Is there a path to profitability on the service? So we were starting to talk about that, you know, back when we closed that round. Um, and the obvious statement is that has, you know, one set us up for success because, you know, the idea of going through that process and thinking about unit economics at Series C, D, and later, um, to me, feels incredibly daunting. And then coming out of that round and into last year, um, obviously the market shifted very quickly and we're lucky to have amazing investors. They're able to say, okay, now, you know, we really do have to double down on this as something that we're in a really good shape for going into the next round. We more recently raised kind of an insider-led extension of that A and very lucky to have um, incredible investors, you know, GV, GC included, but then also Floodgate and Cowboy who have just continued to stay super aligned and invested in this win-win model that we're building out. That's great. So final question. I typically ask our, our guests this at the end of our episode. So what advice do you have for people considering starting a tech-enabled healthcare services company? I like this question a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll start with irrespective of whether you want to go into tech-enabled services or not, <laughs> if you want to go into healthcare writ large, I will always say you've had some experience either within a payer or within the payment system of a hospital. Like you need to understand the revenue levers and incentives within this business and have been exposed to some of the parts of that that are not super pretty. If you then get the chance to really like dig deep into the revenue incentives of a particular type of plan, payer like Medicaid Advantage or Medicaid, like great, that sets you up really well for success. Like you need to be able to talk to the revenue drivers, the value prop really tightly. Related is finding and staying really laser focused on your value prop. We've gone through as an industry, a wave of startups and solutions that sell and solve for outcomes. Um, and it's just the reality that this industry does not consistently and continue to buy on outcomes at scale. And so my advice is always we are included in this and, and many, many startups, many founders are like have a really strong mission at the heart of their business. But you need to find where that mission intersects with revenue levers that you can talk to really precisely in the context of your buyers and be able to say, hey, this solution delivers this incredible outcome for your members, reduces their cost, they're going to be healthier, they're going to be happier. And guess what? It's going to increase the revenue you bring in through this particular you know, mechanism by 20%. And so guess what? All of those great outcomes are going to pay for themselves through the revenue that's going to come in as well. And that makes it a no-brainer for you. And so my advice is always to try and find those win-wins. And it's typically, I'm going to say easy, but there's there's ways of doing that given the way that um, particularly managed care plans have been, been set up. And then I'd say particularly going into tech-enabled services and going back to a couple of things we were talking about earlier, 
say like really prove out at small scale and build early for large scale. And I don't mean like build everything for large scale, but sort of be thinking about how is this thing going to change as I 10, 100x the team that's using this tool working in the system. Um, There's so many facets to that. There's the hiring, there's the training, there's the onboarding, there's the daily workflow. Managing proving something out when you're a team of four is very different to when you're a team of 15, 30, 50, 100, etc. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning curve you can go through, but the, the, the earlier on you're starting to think about it, the better, especially um, in the context of a tech-enabled healthcare service. Awesome. Yeah. All of those, and as someone who has worked in tech-enabled services, uh, those definitely um, track. So I expect that they will uh, definitely resonate with, with listeners. Well, Anna, it's been truly a pleasure speaking with you. I've learned a ton, not only about how you got to the point where where you started Uno, um, what Uno does, and just generally a lot about the the intersection of um, healthcare and and social services. Thank you so much for having me today, Kate. It was a real pleasure. A really fun conversation. <laughs>